Our scripture reading today comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 15. Please stand for the reading. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjugation under his feet. Now when putting everything in subjugation to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjugation to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we are spending some time as we lead up to Good Friday and Easter, focusing on really what defines us more than anything else as Christians, and that is the cross. And so uh, this Sunday, we're going to be considering the victory that took place in the cross. Um, but before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we again uh, recognize in your presence that we are always dependent upon you. And perhaps we especially feel that dependency upon you when it comes to hearing your word. Um, for our hearts and our minds can easily be distracted we can be callous to truths that should shape us. And so we ask even now that the reality of the things that your word tells us of would strike us deeply, that we would be strengthened, that we would see Jesus, and that, that would transform us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this past week, I read a book called When Breath Becomes Air. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It's a, an autobiography of a surgeon who uh, tells the story first of what it's like to be caring for patients, and then part of the way through tells the story of what it is like for him himself to be a patient as he is diagnosed with terminal cancer. It's a difficult book to describe, actually, because it's not a book so much that you read as you almost experience. Um, you, you see through his eyes what it is like literally to hold the lives of people in his hands. And then through his eyes, you also experience the reality of suddenly knowing 
how short your life actually is going to be and how, how imminent death is. And as you read it, you feel the fragility of life and the pervasiveness of suffering and the nearness of death. Now, it's not just books that cause us to, to think that. Um, many of us have encountered this more personally with loved ones dying or near misses with death or even being diagnosed with sicknesses that make us feel fragile. And when, when these things happen, our, our thoughts are pushed beyond the trivialities that normally occupy us. And our souls kind of reach out for something deeper and more substantial. And, and as that happens, sometimes I think for many of us, we find ourselves asking questions, real deep questions. Is God really there? Maybe more to the point, can I trust God with my life? Is God good? And if we're honest, in those moments, sometimes when we're asking ourselves those questions, we find kind of a split decision in response. Our minds that, you know, if we've grown up in the church, if we believe this Christian faith, our minds say, yes, yes, you can. But our hearts look around and we see the way people suffer and we go, I'm not so sure. Is God really good? Now, this is an age-old question, isn't it? If you've read the Bible, you know that that's what Job is really all about. You see Psalms again and again. How long, O Lord, wrestling? God, are you good? And part of the complexity is that as we ask this question of one who is so much bigger than us, we realize how little we actually can understand. It's, it's like we're all in a closet looking through a keyhole at a world so much bigger, and we just see bits and pieces, light, dark, movement, but there's so much more that we don't understand. But yet God, as we look through this keyhole, God shows us the definitive answer to this question, not in a way where we fully understand all, but we know this truth. Because God shows us the cross. And in the cross, we see the definitive answer to this question that yes, God is good. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. Our passage begins by identifying this thing that causes us anguish, this gap between how we know things should be and how things actually are. It starts with this beautiful psalm, Psalm 8, which we read earlier. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Just think of that. Angels are so glorious, so beautiful, that every time they appear to humanity, they always have to say something first. Do not be afraid. And it says, you made us just a little below that. And you, you crowned us so that we have this responsibility on your behalf to rule this world with glory, and perhaps most to the point, you've made everything in subjection to us. That, that idea of subjection to us sounds almost kind of like militaristic, dominating, but that's not the idea. The idea is that when God made this world, he made it so that we were to be the loving overseers, showing God's love to the world around us, and all of the world would follow our lead in perfection. 
I wonder what that would look like. I mean, does that mean that ants would never invade the picnics or that you just kind of share food at the picnic? Does mosquitoes become suddenly vegetarian? You know, like there's, I don't know. But the idea of everything being subject to us is an idea of perfect harmony. And that's the way God made the world. But the writer of Hebrews says what we already know. This is not how things are right now. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection. At present, we do not yet see that harmony that God made this world to enjoy. And don't we know this? I mean, we've already mentioned, we think about our own fragility. How quickly does a heart attack happen out of nowhere? Or someone's diagnosed with cancer and suddenly we feel completely out of control. We do not see everything yet subject to us. Or consider natural disasters. Think of the story that we've been following with Haiti as we've been kind of working together with this area. And, and we, we know how they were struck by an earthquake and it was devastating and they rebuilt. And after a few years, they're struck by a hurricane again. And, the, and, and we see and we say, we do not see everything subject yet to us. And it's not just outside of us. Think of, of human cruelty. Which of us with young children is not worried if we don't know where our kids are for an extended period of time? We've just heard so many horror stories. Or who of us, if we're in the city late at night by ourselves walking outdoors, does not feel a little nervous? And, and we live in a relatively safe area. Imagine what it would be like to be living in an area that is torn by war and genocide and brutality. We don't see everything yet in subjection to us. And it's not just them, it's, it's, it's us, isn't it? We make resolutions we can't keep. We show cruelty and insensitivity that we regret. We betray people. Even as we look at ourselves, we do not yet see everything in subjection to us. And underneath all of this, the great exclamation point to that statement is death. Is there anything that more demonstrates to us how we are not in control of this world than death? We might be able to delay it a short while, but the great statistic still holds true that 10 out of 10 die. We do not control death. In fact, really, it's probably more accurate to say that death has a hold over us. Perhaps you notice the very last sentence of our passage, how, as verse 15 says, we are those who are enslaved to the fear of death. An interesting statement, enslaved to the fear of death. Maybe some of you go, I don't know if that's true of me. I don't feel that afraid of death. But I wonder if that's because you have so avoided the idea that you don't talk about it, you don't think about it. If someone dies, you don't say they die, you say they've passed away. You try to remove death from your consciousness because it is such a terrifying thing that it's much more pleasant not to think about it at all. But yet, when you take a moment to start actually contemplating your death, the moment your heart will stop beating and your body will become cold, it's terrifying. In The Art of Dying, Robert Neal speaks of a few reasons why we are so afraid of death. 
There's the vulnerability. When we come near an end, we lose control of our faculties, of our body, and we are as vulnerable as the day we were born. And that scares us. There's the fear of incompleteness, that as we come to an end, we think of all the things that we haven't been able to experience, all of the failure that we have endured for not doing the things we set out to do, and that terrifies us. We think of separation, separation from those we love. What will happen to them? We're afraid. Another book, Ernst Becker wrote this Pulitzer Prize winning called The Denial of Death, and his argument is that so much of what drives us right now in our day-to-day life, though we don't realize it, is us trying to push death away. We pursue immortality through making a name for ourselves that hopefully will live beyond our death. We pursue immortality through investing in our children and hoping they live beyond ourselves. We try to set up fortresses, making ourselves more secure, making ourselves more invulnerable, because deep down there is a fear of death. We are enslaved to fear. It is not love that often drives us, but fear. No, we do not yet see everything subject to us. And we know this isn't how things should be. I mean, the world around us sometimes, if it it has kind of a secular mindset, will try to say this is just nature. This is survival of the fittest. This isn't evil or good. This is just the way things are. But we cry out in our souls, no, that is not true. We feel that it should be otherwise. We feel the gap between how God designed things and how things are. And we say we do not yet see everything in subjection to us. But, Scripture says, we do see Jesus. Did you see that that kind of turn in verse 8? It says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And in that context, it's man, it's humanity. We don't yet see everything in subject to us. But we do see him, namely Jesus, made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. But we do see Jesus. And the context here clearly is saying this provides the solution to this anguish that we're experiencing right now. We don't yet see things the way we should be, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And the reason is because Jesus is our archegos. I know that's an unfamiliar word. If you look at verse 10, and this is a complicated verse that we're going to come back to a couple of times, but notice how in verse 10 what Jesus is described as, as. He is, it says, the founder of our salvation. And that word founder is the Greek word archegos, and it, and it means the one who goes before. It's oftentimes translated military leader or, or champion or hero or pioneer. Now, if you imagine that you are somehow stuck in dense jungle, and you're completely lost, and there's no clear way forward, and someone who is from the local area comes and joins you, and then with a machete, he cuts through the grass, and he paves a way, and he has a rope that gets you across the ravine, and you find yourself in civilization. The one who just did that, that's your archegos. Or, or maybe a, you know, a different scenario, maybe this is even closer to the idea. Imagine kind of a, a Mission Impossible-like scene. You are in an enemy prison. And to your surprise, you see kind of at the door, 
Ethan Hunt picking the lock, opening the door for you, kind of putting his finger in front of his mouth, having you follow him, and you just kind of passively watch as first with his smartphone, he, he disarms all of the alarms and all of the uh, locks, and then he uses his martial arts to take out one guard after another, and again, you're just kind of like following him because you don't have any of those moves. And eventually you get to the wall and he puts some plastique on it, blows a hole, you crash through, there is the Lamborghini with his car already going, you pop in and you leave and you are safe. He, in that situation, is your archegos. He has gone before you. He is your champion, your pioneer. He has set you free. That's the idea of this word. And here we see Jesus. He is our pathfinder. He is our Ethan Hunt. He is our pioneer of our salvation. And yet the way he accomplishes this, the way that he paves the way for us is different from any other kind of hero that we know. It begins with him identifying with us. The end of verse 11 says that Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if you are the son of God who is enjoying perfect bliss with God, and perfect contentment, would you choose to be identified with us? I mean, think of us. Think of humanity, our corruption, our pettiness, our complete disregard for God. I mean, the Son of God would have every right to say, you know what, I would rather not be a part of that crew. But we see here, Jesus is not ashamed. He's not ashamed of us. In fact, When he looks at us, he doesn't just see our corruption. He sees the fact that we were made by the same God that he is one with. And so it says he calls us brothers. He identifies with us. In fact, he so identifies with us that he becomes one of us. Verse 14, since therefore the children, that's describing us, share in flesh and blood, he himself Likewise, partook of the same things. The Son of God takes on flesh. He enters the mess of our humanity. The impossible happens as the Son of God becomes an infant. And when he becomes one of us, when he identifies with us, he takes on a very specific mission. As verse 10 tells us, his task as our archegos, our pioneer, is to bring Many sons to glory. Now remember what we said. God created us to be crowned with glory and honor so that everything is subject to us. And Jesus comes and what is he doing? He is bringing about the thing that was designed by God to be true from the outset. He is bringing us into that glory that God created us to enjoy. That's his mission. To bring us to the way that we were made to be. And the way that Jesus engaged in this battle, the way that Jesus takes on all of our enemies, suffering, death, the devil, all of those things that resist this goal is not through martial arts moves. It's not through power. It's not through cleverness. It's through suffering. Let's look one more time at verse 10. It's a very dense verse. It has so much in it. So let's just try to break this complicated statement into pieces. 
It says, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, we know that that's God. God is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. So it was right that God, in bringing many sons to glory, again, that's the mission that he has. It was right that God should make the founder of their salvation. Remember, that word is the archegos. Now we're talking about Jesus. That he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So putting this together, it was right that God would bring about our salvation through our archegos, through Jesus, by making him perfect through suffering. Jesus' way of saving us was by being perfected through suffering. Now that's a strange, kind of complicated statement for us because we know the Son of God is perfect already, right? So how is it that he could be perfected? It's helpful, I think, to realize that that word perfected has the idea of being completed. It's the idea of fulfillment. It's not the idea necessarily of faultlessness. And that's, that's what's going on here. It's the idea of completion. If you are a contractor who has been tasked with, with remodeling a kitchen, then your role as contractor is not completed until you have fulfilled that specific task. You could say that your identity as contractor is in some ways perfected through your carpentry. That's the idea here. But for Jesus, with his task, of course, he's not bringing about our salvation through carpentry. He perfects his role as our archegos through suffering. And if we wanted clarity about this, as we do, we could keep going, and in a few chapters from now, in Hebrews 5, he will expand on this very idea. You don't have it in your bulletins, I'll just read it to you. In chapter 5, it says, In the days of his flesh, that is when Jesus had become one of us, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Even though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you hear that connection? He was perfected as he obeyed and as he suffered, and through that completion, he brought about eternal salvation to all of us. The idea is that the way that our, our pioneer, our hero, would bring us into glory was through his obedience to the Father and through his enduring suffering. Because, see, what we need is someone to succeed where we failed. Someone to be faithful to the Father, to be obedient even as we were faithless. And we need someone to endure what we cannot endure. To experience the suffering for our wrongdoing that would destroy us. And that's the task, that's the mission that the Son of God undertook by becoming one of us. To pave the way by succeeding where we failed and by enduring what we could not. So really, the way that we should see the life of Jesus is this ongoing hand-to-hand combat with Satan who is seeking to stop Jesus from fulfilling this mission. It begins most clearly in the time that Jesus is being tempted. You know that story. It's right at the beginning of his ministry 
where for 40 days in obedience to God, he goes without food, and then Satan comes at him with everything he can to tempt Jesus. Don't obey God. Make those stones into bread because you're hungry. Test God to see if he loves you by throwing yourself off the temple and seeing if he catches you. Here's the way to avoid the cross. Obey me, and I will give you everything. And Jesus is exhausted, but he fights, and he clings to the cross. Sorry, he clings to scripture. The battle continues throughout his ministry. Jesus is casting out demons. He speaks of how he needs to bind the strong man to be able to redeem the people. Halfway through his ministry, he explains to his disciples that he is going to need to go to the cross. And his best friend, Peter, says, you are definitely not going to do that. And Jesus sees the danger in those words and the temptation. And he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He is battling. And that fighting comes to a culmination at a garden. Not the Garden of Eden where humanity first failed. But the Garden of Gethsemane where humanity for the very first time succeeded. We're told that he tells his disciples, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. And then he collapses on the ground not too far from where he leaves the disciples. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he offers out loud cries and tears. Father, if it be your will, take this from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He battled. He fought in that moment. And then when Jesus is falsely accused and mocked, rather than losing his dignity by responding, he stays silent. When people accuse him and say he's the king of the Jews and, and strikes him, he could have in that moment, if he had wanted to, called down fire and incinerated them. But he endures. When he's on the cross, people are like, he's the king of the Jews. He says he's the Messiah. He should save himself. And of course, he could have. But not if he chose to be the king of us. Not if he chose to be our archegos. And so he battled even that temptation and stayed on the cross until in victory he cried, it is finished. And he breathed out his last breath. And in that moment, he won. Verse 14, we've read it already. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you hear what that is saying? Our hero, our pioneer, delivered us. He set us free. In her recent book on the crucifixion, Fleming Rutledge wrote that in order for God truly to overcome the very worst, the son underwent the very worst. What is not undergone, she says, is not overcome. In other words, for Jesus to free us from our fate, for him to be victorious, he had to undergo our fate instead. He redeemed us from our disobedience and faithlessness by being steadfastly obedient and faithful. 
He dealt with the suffering of this world by himself experiencing unimaginable suffering. He fought against evil by himself enduring evil. And our great enemy, death, he conquered through his death. He, our Archegos, has set us free. And that means at least two things. First, when we look at Jesus, we see the answer to our question. We see Jesus now crowned with glory. Is God good? Well, what do we see when we see Jesus? We see someone who gave absolutely everything, every breath, every moment, all the way unto death to resist, to defeat evil. And Jesus says, when you see me, you see God. We see God's heart. We see God's disposition against suffering and evil when we look at what Jesus did with his life. God hates evil. He hates suffering. When he looks at what is taking place in Syria and genocide, he hates that. When he sees the suffering that's caused by injustice and by racism, he hates that. When he sees children who die too young, it grieves God. Now, why is it that God also is in control and allows things like this to happen? I have no idea. I am looking through a keyhole, and there's something so much bigger than what I can see. But what we see is when we look at Jesus, who gave everything to destroy Satan and death itself, we see that God hates evil, that God is good. And we also see that we don't need to be afraid because the one who goes before is now crowned with glory and honor and that is where we one day will be. And missionary Elizabeth Elliot tells the story of being in the jungle, um, following a guide who is, you know, guiding the tribes there. And there's this one point where there's this ravine and this tree is the only way, this branch, you know, like this tree that's fallen across the ravine is the only way to get there. And the guy just kind of like hops across. And, and she is just kind of stuck, paralyzed in that moment because she's afraid of heights and this does not seem like an easy path to take. And so the guide looks back and realizes what's going on. And so then the guide comes back, takes her hand, and brings her across. That's what Jesus has done for us. He sees the chasm that we cannot cross and he goes before and he makes a way and he holds out his hand and will bring us through death to life, to glory, to a life without suffering where all things are subject to us. 1 Corinthians says this song at the very end when it's talking about the resurrection, where, O death, is your sting? We will die because not all things are made right, but beyond death is life because of our hero who has gone before us. And because we do not need to be afraid, that means we are free. Now, one commentator on this passage wrote this. He says, in recent years, a friend of mine had the privilege of visiting an old Chinese pastor who had spent 25 years in prison because of his faith in Christ. This pastor and other Christian leaders in China were brought before Chairman Mao and commanded to join the government's official church, and they informed the chairman, 
speaking truth to power, that they would not compromise the gospel. The pastor who my friend visited was the only one to leave the prison alive. He continued to lead many believers in the study of scripture. And during the visit with him, the suggestion was made that the two of them should go out for a meal. And being concerned for the church leader's safety, my friend asked if it would be okay or if he would get in trouble for talking openly with a Westerner. And the old man just replied with a smile, what can they do to me? And that's right, isn't it? Death has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. Our great hero, our great Archegos has done everything. What? What can they do to us? What can anything ultimately do to us when that is true? Let me lead us in prayer. Father, these truths we see just a bit with our mind and maybe a little bit with our hearts, but we struggle to believe. Lord, please open our eyes and our hearts to see the reality that even death we do not need to be afraid of because of Jesus. Help us to see Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to please join with me in our community confession of sin in response to God's word. Where the print is bold, if you could say this with me. Most merciful God, your son, Jesus Christ, was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. Together, we confess before you our own sinfulness. We have hungered after that which does not satisfy. We have compromised with evil. We have continued to live in slavery. And we have doubted your power to protect us. Take a moment in silent confession. Forgive our lack of faith. Have mercy on our weakness. Restore in us trust and love so that we might delight in following and serving your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. And hear the good news of the gospel. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hear the good news. Through the death and suffering of Jesus Christ, God is victorious over Satan, sin, and death, and your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.